Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Richard Levick. Richard, welcome to Power Hour. Uh, Alex, thanks so much. It's great to be here with you. Okay, so I'm super excited today because we're going to talk energy communications, which is part of what I I do for a living. Usually what we have on the show are energy experts, which which is of course great, but to have an energy communications expert is something exciting to me and and I'm sure to uh, the listeners. Uh, You're extremely well known in the communications community, but perhaps not as much in at least the energy fan community. So could you give us some background on yourself and Levick Public Affairs? Uh, certainly. Thanks so much, Alex. And it, uh, Richard Levick and the firm is Levick. And uh, we're probably best known for our high-profile crisis work around the world, and that's everything from the Wall Street crisis and AIG to the Gulf oil spill uh, to um, high-profile matters out of the Middle East, uh, whether they be financial or labor and employment or uh, crisis matters. Uh, and those, I think, are the things that uh, people most often often think uh, about us uh, from a communications point of view. I think that one of the other challenges that I've seen as the world has moved in this uh, digital revolution is that the worlds between public affairs, that is what happens in state capitals or Washington, D.C., or Brussels, other political centers of the world, uh, and grassroots and crisis have all merged because so much now uh, that used to take place largely as an inside the beltway uh, activity, if we're talking about a domestic U.S. issue, uh, it now happens uh, in in the hinterlands. And uh, many of the things that we used to think of as public affairs arise to a level of crisis or quasi-crisis. So we're seeing all those worlds merge. Now, now is that uh, because when, I remember um, when I first started researching you, maybe a year and a half ago, definitely crisis communications is what, what stood out. Um, and yet the reason for bringing you on the show in particular here is you've written some fascinating columns recently on on these public opinion issues and local opinion issues, particularly Keystone XL, um, Colorado, and then recently in Ohio. Has your own work evolved in this direction? Tell me what you well, mean I guess by I don't that, think Alex. of those as I guess I don't think of those as crisis situations because there there are crisis elements, but I I think of crisis and perhaps in, incorrectly I'm perhaps dichotomizing, but crisis as you know Watergate that that kind of thing or crisis as BP this this singular event that everybody is up in arms about and you need to say something very, very quickly. Whereas when I work with clients, I don't do crisis at all. I mean, except by implication, you know, we work on long-term strategy. Here's how to do uh, a campaign. So how, the, how those two integrate. 
I, you know, I, Alex, I would answer that twofold. I would, one, say as a firm, we have always uh, been involved in financial and merger and acquisition and public affairs matters, but we're best known globally uh, for our high-profile uh, crisis uh, and litigation work. So as a firm, historically, we've always been involved in that. Now, uh, but I think the larger question you're asking is, has something changed? And, and I think that it has. And the best way to articulate that is by way of example. So you take Keystone, which you just mentioned, and Keystone should never have uh, arisen to a crisis level. It's, it's a public affairs matter that enjoyed 77% support by the American public uh, just a couple of years ago. And yet what we've seen is that TransCanada, uh, the company building or trying to build the Keystone pipeline, has spent last year, according to the what's known as the LDA, the Lobbying Disclosure Act, $20 million on lobbyists last year in Washington uh, and in state capitals. Uh, and uh, God knows how much uh, this year uh, so far, uh, but they have spent that trying to change the mind or trying to get the president to make a decision on it. And what we would argue is that Keystone, which should have been a slam dunk, after all, we're talking about lower energy prices, we're talking about uh, the ability for North American uh, production uh, of uh, of energy that uh, and 77 uh, percent support, but they can't get the president uh, to uh, to move on that for all sorts of political reasons. So that issue has gone from what what was a public affairs issue to a crisis. It's really changed everything uh, for that company. And simultaneously, what we've seen is both on fracking and Keystone. That ha those two issues have become the primary issues with which environmental NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and nonprofits have uh, used very successfully to raise funds. Uh, so, so yes, the worlds between uh, public affairs and crisis continue to merge, and I think it's why it's so important for public affairs professionals to start thinking, what's next? How do we control the conversation? How do we influence it? Because in the digital world, things happen so quickly. We don't want to be in a position where we're having to defend a position rather than already have won it. Now, a large part of, of your explanations in the recent articles of, of, of the failures of communications with, um, you know, with Keystone XL and in, in Colorado, where you have these, these uh, local fracking bans and, and the threat uh, you know, in the coming election of something much, much worse, at least from my perspective, much worse, you have these very dramatic infographics about the social media presence of the activists versus the uh, companies, even though the companies have all of these uh, these resources. Why? And, and you also mention how the social media, I'm trying to find the quote here, you write, shares, tweets, and viral commentary have overtaken polls as the first place policymakers turn when seeking to take the pulse of their constituencies. So I guess two questions. Why is that? Why have they overtaken polls in that way? And then why has the, you would think, seemingly small opposition so dominated that? Well, two things, two answers to your questions. One, that social media has overtaken polling because polling is so antiquated. Uh, it used to be in, you know, I talk about the revolution, and the revolution is that we're in 
an information revolution. A lot of people confuse it and call it a digital revolution. It's not a digital revolution. It's an information revolution. It changes everything in terms of how we get information, how our opinions are formed, and because it's interactive, how we can inform the body public. Uh, and uh, so, so the world has changed in this, uh, this revolution every bit as significant as the agricultural and industrial revolutions that have preceded it. But I think that some people, many people, particularly industry, and the energy industry is no exception, is still looking in the rearview mirror. You know, buggy whips were still selling very robustly 15 years after the Model T was introduced. There is a habit that we have of looking at things that used to work, and amongst them were poles. Now, poles still have, obviously can be very effective, but at the end of the day, if you're a staff member of the 535 members of Congress, you just go onto Google, and within a moment, you see what's on the first page of Google. And if it's overwhelmingly anti-fracking or anti-keystone, you know what the public is thinking. And it tells you what the trend lines are. And in Washington, we all say that nobody wants to be first, but everyone wants to be second. And as a result, if it seems like the public mood is anti-keystone or anti-fracking or anti-ANWAR, uh, Arctic National uh, Wildlife Reserve, or whatever the issue is, then um, you're not going to step in front of that. What you're going to do is you're going to hold off your position at best uh, or you're going to reserve your position because you see where the public appears to be going. So that's why uh, digital, with its easy accessibility, has largely replaced polls uh, for the staff members uh, of Congress. And then you said, I think the second part of the question was, uh, why has it, it, it changed so much? Not just why is polling outdated, but why has it changed so much? And it's because of its two-way nature. Activists understand, and you, you know, Alex, my first career, 30-some years ago, I worked for environmental NGOs. My master's degree is in environmental advocacy. During law school, I spent, uh, I took all the environmental law courses that they had and, and uh, was a longtime member of many of the different environmental organizations and worked for many years for Ralph Nader-based uh, environmental uh, organizations. I understand how they think and why they think the way they do, and I understand what, what's smart about it. And I also understand that all tactics are neutral. And for energy companies, if they want now to control the conversation, it's different than it was pre-revolution. It used to be you were a brilliant communicator if you knew which of uh, the uh, three networks to advertise on, you know, what's getting more eyeballs? Is it Mr. Ed, my three sons, or my favorite Martian? You know, and that's all there was. Well, those were the options. It was three networks. Is it the AM paper or the PM paper? It was a Republican form of communications, small r. You knew the reporters if you were publicly traded. You knew the analyst. You knew the network representatives. You knew the AM paper and the PM paper. There were very few choices with which to communicate in. You had relationships. You could write a check or make a phone call and control the conversation. In the age of the Internet, we have now gone from a Republican form to a Democratic form. Again, all small R's and D's. It's you know, very much the Hamiltonian to the Jeffersonian form of 
democracy. It's not representative. An individual, a mommy blogger, can have a huge influence. You know, a mommy blogger with six followers on Pampers was uh, able to get their new uh, diaper recalled. Uh, and so what happens is people are empowered. And if people believe that they have accurate information, they're going to share it. Heretofore, if you were upset by something, the most that you could do was throw your, you know, your uh, rolled up socks at the television, uh, maybe talk to your friends. Now, you can have a blog within minutes or, uh, or at most hours. You can tweet to your thousands of followers. You have so many choices from social media. You can get thousands of people to like it on Facebook. You can start doing pictures that portray your position on Pinterest. You have the ability to have your own printing press, your own movie studio. So the, the issue of polls versus other forms of, of measuring, like measuring social media, raises this, the whole question of measurement. You know, how do you measure what works? How do you measure uh, effectiveness? And, and to play devil's advocate on the social media idea, I mean, there must be cases where it's obvious that there's the equivalent of what they call astroturf, that, that there's phony social media created. And at least on the face of it, it seems as if, well, why wouldn't a poll be more representative in terms of what people, what will actually happen when they go to the voting booth? How, how would you respond to that? Well, I think it's always been about who's uh, invested. You know, I always said that uh, George Washington crossed the Delaware with about 33% approval rating. You know, a third of Americans uh, supported the revolution, a third opposed, and a third had, had no point of view. Well, I, it's the same today. It's, uh, it's not the majority who rules. It's the active, engaged minority. And if people are active, it means they they use communications. It means they fund candidates. They vote. And they're going to have influence. Uh, and polling uh, presumes that one it has always been an, an inaccurate science at best. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Dewey Beats Truman, but but I'm also thinking more about the fact that it's just a snapshot about a moment. You know, in this moment in time, people are saying that, you know, Obama's approval rating is down. Of course it is true. But it's also true that the worst healthcare.gov press is largely over. That story is largely behind us. He will largely recover from this, and those polls happen to represent a moment in time. So uh, because there was no election during that moment in time, they are no more particularly representative of, of what uh, a government will do uh, than any other form of information. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating point about the active, engaged minority. And, and I've argued with clients before about polls because pollsters will often tell people what they want to hear. And I'll just say, well, like, look at common sense. Look at, look at where the actual enthusiasm is, say, on Keystone XL. There's a whole, there's a whole bunch of passionate opponents but where are the, the the passionate champions? And this the, the following may draw on your experience as an actual activist. And I think you, if I remember correctly, you also have some uh, background in, in philosophy. Why is it? Why do you think that the passion is on the side of the activists? Great question. I think that passion is on the side of the activists for a number of reasons. One, 
it's in their backyard. It's their community. It's their neighborhood. It is, it's their jobs or absence thereof. It's their water faucet. It's personal. Uh, they are most, for, by and large, uh, activists are not experts. You know, one of the things that law school taught me was how little I know about anything. The realization that we could spend a lifetime studying the head of a pen and still not know enough. And it was, uh, it is in fact so very difficult to understand all of the, any particular issue in depth. And it's why David Gergen, who was counsel to four presidents, three Republican, uh, one Democrat, said photo headline story. That's always uh, what people do. They follow the photo, uh, they look at the headline, and then some of them read the story. But it's the photo. And if you look at fracking, for example, we have to look at the HBO movie Gasland, which I think was so incredibly effective at communicating the concerns about fracking and people see that and this is the ultimate issue it's all emotional if you look at how uh, industry and industry groups respond whether it's to fracking or keystone or in the food industry gmo genetically modified food if you look at their websites they all have a similar word that they use that's the word facts get the facts get the facts.org the facts about fracking the facts about gmo nobody cares about the facts let me ask you a question the last time you argued with your spouse, did you use the facts? I mean, how's that working for you? All these um, uh, issues are emotional. Nobody knows this better than the automobile industry. The automobile industry doesn't advertise facts. They advertise emotions. It's about the emotions. When you look at a car advertisement, it is not, these cars will last 10 years. Please hold on to it for 10 years. They have very sexy men and women advertising it, having a great time, and you're thinking, I need a new car because I will look like that, and maybe I'll get lucky tonight. You know, there's a whole, what are they buying into the whole image? They're not selling facts. They're selling emotion. And Henry Ford understood that, which is why he went from all black cars to colored cars, cars that you know, were, were different colors and what it did was it changed people's feeling and that's been going on for a hundred years and yet when the industry tries to argue a point it argues the facts here's the key takeaway if I were an activist I'd be happy to go up against the big bad utility company or the mining company or the pipeline company the, the big bad energy company that's an easy adversary but, you know, we picked up the phone and we talked to our friends over at the retirement organizations and the civil rights groups and the uh, veterans groups. And we said, how do you guys feel about fracking? And they said, you know, if it means no more wars in, uh, over oil in the Middle East, if it means that uh, we're going to have uh, gas prices or energy prices are going to be reduced for all of our members on fixed incomes, if it means more jobs, we're hugely in support of that and we'd be all over it but you know something nobody's asked us so this gets to that question you asked Alex a moment ago which is uh, about passion and about how come uh, companies don't understand how to argue uh, in this democratic workplace it's because they're trying to do it themselves they need these third-party allies and I will tell you if early on in fracking if early on in Keystone the people carrying that debate were, were, were your, looked like your grandmother and said, I now no longer have to choose 
between heating and eating. If there were veterans groups who said, this is wonderful, not only does it mean jobs for our veterans, but it means we're not going to fight wars over oil in the Middle East anymore. Uh, and if it were civil rights groups saying, this is wonderful for what it means for high-paying uh, jobs and training for our members, you'd have a completely different conversation out there. But instead, the conversation is all about how disruptive fracking allegedly is in and of itself. And as long as it's a one-off debate, it's either nuclear or nothing. It's either coal or nothing. It's either fracking or nothing. The environmentalists always win. But if, in fact, it is, you know, I love my PDA. I love my personal uh, communication device, my iPhone, my iPad, my computer. It's got to be fueled somewhere. You know, even my electri electric car has got to be fueled somehow. And... Uh, maybe fracking is not perfect, but it's safer and better than other choices. And look who's in favor of it. Grandma's in favor of it. My vet, the vet next door is in favor of it. The unions, which have been everywhere from silent to uh, in opposition, they're in favor of it. I guess I am too, because at the end of the day, representative democracy is just that. It's representative. We don't. It's very hard for us to have original opinions, and we look around for others to help influence us. So if, if I look at the, the passion of, of the activists, and even if I speculate, well, what, what caused you to go into you know, in, environmental issues instead of, say, becoming a champion of the coal industry um, you know, when, when you did? And when I look at other people, there seems to be this overarching moral issue of fossil fuels are viewed as destroying the planet. And it's something that we need to stop doing. And the idealists are the ones who want to get us off that quickly or slowly. And you're viewed as cynical and ultimately immoral if you're, you're defending the status quo. And if you look at Keystone, Bill McKibben, you know, there's a certain logic to his position if, if you agree that it's destroying the planet, which I don't. But he's saying, look, we at some point we have to stop doing the wrong thing. And he's got a whole bunch of fervent people passionate on these campuses about, look, we have to stop doing the wrong thing. What about the role of morality and moral idealism in emotion and passion? You know, you've written uh, about it a lot, and I think you raised some really good points. And, uh, you know, I, look, at 22 years old, 23 years old in graduate school, and I've got long hair and a beard, and I've got my No Nukes t-shirt, and uh, I remember spending a day uh, in a deep coal mine and another day in a strip mine. And I remember thinking, even back then, thinking, you know, there's a cost to all forms of energy. We all want, we all want our energy to be as clean and as safe and as non-disruptive as possible. But we still want our energy. There is some cost associated with it. I love solar and I love wind, but they represent such a tiny portion of our energy right now to think that those two alone solve it or that a reduction in energy, which has been dramatic over the last decade and is wonderful and to be applauded, but to think that they will make up for the gap is just, it's just not accurate at this point. We've come a long way in 30 years on all three, reduction, solar, and 
and wind, but we're still a long way off. And then, you know, if you look at wind, which is supposed to be entirely non-disruptive, you still have all of those people who were making the not-in-my-backyard, the NIMBY argument, which is, well, we don't want these built here. So it seems that every form of energy creates some problem for someone, and I think that there are well, you know, there, there are all sorts of moral questions, and uh, I, you know, for me, a moral qu- that, that uh, you know, McKibben and others are right that there are moral questions. But it's from a communicator's point of view, which moral questions do you want to be talking about? Do you want to be talking about senior citizens on fixed incomes freezing to death? Do you want to be talking about? Uh, veterans who've lost limbs or lives because uh, we've had to fight wars that ostensibly were over access to energy? Do we want to talk about geo- uh, the, the ethical and mora- uh, morality issues of our geopolitics, which for at least half a century have been largely influenced by oil? I think that those are really important uh, ethical issues to be discussed as well. And I, I I like that that separation. I mean, so you and I might have have different focuses, but uh, I think it's it's important to there is an issue of what what moral issues you're focusing on, but you have to focus on moral issues. And then there's some of the the but there's also the aspect of how you cover that issue in this this purely quote factual approach, which I I think facts have a big role to play if they're the right powerful fact. But the idea of just saying oh here are the facts about fracking and that's it. Obviously, that's not as powerful as connecting fracking to somebody's individual life or the lives of somebody he cares about. So I think both picking the powerful issues and then using the power, and in both cases, I think industry is often doesn't, they often don't pick the right moral issues, and then they, they are way too abstract when they cover them. Three things. You're absolutely right. One, um, they let others control the conversation. Two, they try and argue in facts, not emotion. Three, They haven't identified who their communicators are. The messenger is as important, if not more so, than the message. Grandma, or reasonable facsimile, veterans, unions, making the arguments about jobs and uh, and, uh, living on a fixed income and national security, hugely powerful and so much more powerful than us making arguments on facts. Ronald Reagan taught the lesson 35 years ago. You know, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, was an engineer and brilliant, and uh, yet he didn't understand how to communicate emotionally. And Ronald Reagan understood that people could not comprehend the facts about welfare. It was too complicated to what it was uh, its impact on the federal budget, but they could understand what a singular welfare quote quote unquote welfare queen was doing uh, was was allegedly ripping off the system. It would turn out that she was an amalgamation. There was no such person, and she was an amalgamation of uh, many different stories. But by the time that came out, the effect of the communications was overwhelming. People said, this isn't right. They, people can understand a singular issue. It's why we lost, ultimately, the support in the United States of the Vietnam War. Before television in Korea, we just heard about all these numbers and people 
uh, dying, but unless it was your husband, your son, your brother, your father, it didn't have as much meaning. When you could watch on television every night with Walter Cronkite and see people on your television screen being shot, it had a huge and emotional impact. And that we keep getting back to it, Alex, but that emotional impact is what drives everything we do, and it's what drives activists to be so honestly and deeply engaged, and it what, it's what drives people to ignore factual arguments. Well, we might differ on, on how honestly people engage, and certainly in history we have many large populations of activists who do horrific things, but it is noteworthy that they are very motivated. I mean, because emotion and motivation and action are so, are so intertwined. Um, well, you know, it, uh, Alex, you know, history is written by the victors, and so uh, I'm sure the Brits were not all that flattering of us uh, our founding fathers immediately after the revolution. They may be our closest allies now, uh, but 230 years ago, their perception of uh, of uh, our founding fathers were treasonous. And so, of course, it is always a question of, uh, you know, where you stand, where you sit depends on, uh, where you sit depends on uh, where you stand. And, and so pe people have uh, a different view. And activists can do wonderful things. They can create a country. Uh, they can create, they can end a war. And activists uh, can also uh, create negative revolutions or uh, make things actually worse, as in the case of some of the issues that we're discussing. Right. Um, as far as, so to circle back to an earlier question about, about measuring, um, if, so let, let's say we go back to Reagan and, and the term welfare queen, and that was something incredibly effective because you're, you're capturing an idea in this emotionally resonant and memorable way. Um, what do you think these days would be the most effective way of, of testing that? So if, if you or someone else was develop, you know, if, if you're developing different ideas for how to make a certain point about fracking, how do you test to know what's going to work best? I, you, uh, I think it's pretty obvious here. I think one, first of all, most important is you get involved early. And I appreciate, I appreciate that the energy industry has faced 40 years, if not more, of criticism, and that their experiences, every time we touch the hot stove, it burns. It's really hard for us to get involved. But, you know, if they don't get involved, the debate is controlled by others. The narrative is controlled by others. Uh, and that has happened with all the issues we've discussed today, ANWR, fracking, uh, Keystone, that activists have controlled the conversation. The HBO uh, movie Gasland, which we discussed a few months ago, for the longest time, that was the lead site that you saw when you put in the words fracking on the web. And in fact, none of the other terms, natural gas drilling, none of the other terms have any resonance. Fracking is the term that controls the web, and Gasland is the site that controlled the conversation. So I think that trying to test too many messages, trying to be too careful, trying to be, do too many polls and be certain. By the time you're doing it, those are all excuses not to engage at the end of the day. What happens is you have to be engaged early. You have to look for third parties. You have to let them explain to you what the benefits are. And, and, and if you get involved early, what will happen is a lot of the people who will become uh, adversaries will remain neutral 
And a lot of the neutrals will become people who actually could either be supporters or, at the very worst, uh, can be open neutrals uh, who are willing to communicate your message. So key issue early on, what are the benefits? And that's why we don't talk facts. We talk benefits. About earlier, lower gas prices, great for people on fixed incomes, changing geopolitics, et cetera, et cetera. Talk in benefits. There's no conversation about benefits on the web when it comes to these energy issues, and we are always open to a conversation about benefits. There's some, it seems like there's some interesting analogies to business. I never thought of, I think, appreciated the point about getting involved early. I know uh, one of your mottos at your company is the urgency of, of now, but it, it makes a lot of sense thinking about it that uh, you want to get started now and, and that there can be analysis paralysis. And that, that reminds me just of having started uh, a business. And you can always think of a time to do it in the future, but there's so much that's learned in the process of doing it. I don't know if that's an exact analogy, but it is... I think that's a good lesson uh, for people to take to not wait a year to do all their focus groups because they're going to be way behind. And even then, that probably won't generate as good a result as as just being out there. You know, one of the things that has been advantageous for companies, for large companies, is that they're large companies and they're safe and that you don't take a risk. And engaging early, identifying third-party allies, Getting involved in two-way conversations on the Internet is risky. And one of the things that we get spoiled about when the model of communications for 60 years is write a check, control an advertisement or an advertising campaign, build a relationship, and uh, be the first one that the journalists go to and whom they trust, is that there's not a lot of risk in that. It's worked and worked and worked again. So you get spoiled by that. And one of the things that NGOs are used to is they're used to being attacked. They're used to being criticized. They're used to not always being positioned as angels. So they're, you know, they're used to the, that criticism, and they're okay with it for a while. And, but, but companies, which have been able to control the conversation, are not used to a two-way conversation. You know, a newspaper, by definition, is history, not news. It was printed yesterday. But the great thing about it is that it is a one-way conversation. Now, everything is two-way, and companies have to get comfortable with, there's going to be some criticism if you engage, but that is a hell of a lot better than letting momentum build to the point where your 77% uh, approval rating uh, with, key, uh, with the Keystone Pipeline or your 56% or 66% uh, approval rating, pardon me, with fracking gets reversed because the conversation becomes emotional and controlled by others. What are some ways in, in let, let's take the example of Colorado and, and on the, on the website, I'll give everyone a link to these, these articles because it's, it's very important to read them and there's some fascinating graphics. But if we take the Colorado situation, which in my view could be dire, what should they be doing right now in terms of two-way conversation? And, and I would add in a way that doesn't seem phony or contrived or, or stilted. I think that they started, 
I think they started to do that. And uh, one is if you looked at their website originally, you know, it's CRED, the uh, Committee for Responsible Energy Development. And I, I have to say, uh, you know, I, I do think that's one of the worst names since uh, Nixon's re-election campaign, the Committee to Re-elect the President creep. Um, and, uh, you know, again, they went to their, their old website to get the facts. And, you know, by CRED, they said, well, if you agree with us, you have credibility. If you don't, you're not credible. And that's, again, you know, arguing facts. Their, uh, the website itself used uh, uh, art uh, that is, uh, you know, fill in art that's uh, these pictures of uh, Colorado. And while there was, you know, a lovely picture of the mountains, it wasn't emotional. It's not the people who are actually involved. And we want to see ourselves in things. We don't want to see clip art. Uh, what we want to see is ourselves. We want to see a reflection of us. If you look at new advertising campaigns, it's actually becoming, there's new technology out there that actually morphs pictures of you and your friends so the people selling you hawking uh, products actually look like some amalgamation of the people you already know and trust. I'm not saying that uh, the uh, energy companies and manufacturing need to go quite to that direction, but I am saying that it needs to be personal. The call to action there is no call to action. It says, you know, put in your name here and we'll mail you our newsletter. That is not a call to action. If you go to the Gasland website, there's this wonderful animation which lists all the dangers of fracking. And at the end, it says type in your zip code and up pops an email to your congressman just by your zip code so that you can easily write an email to them opposing fracking. It gets you to act right away. Getting a newsletter is not activist, it's pacifist. So I think that video is hugely important. It's 56 times more powerful than the written word and getting you found. You know, there was no optimization for the cred site originally. So that's starting to change. I think that's helpful, but they still need to get other third parties, particularly unions and other third parties to weigh in. Who will be the, the, the beneficiaries? And if we see our neighbors, if we see our grandmothers, if we see our veterans who are supporting this, then by golly, we're going to stand up and salute that flag. Yeah, that's all, all fascinating to me because I, um, it's def definitely not my expertise um, in terms of in terms of making these ultimate activist pages. But as as just an observer, I go to the Greenpeace site and I go to say a, a pro fracking site, and it's night and day in terms of effectiveness, in terms of how motivated I would be as a consumer of either. And then all Greenpeace, I think, is also brilliant in terms of uh, of calls to action. Um, what's your assessment of, of how quickly people are, are learning? Because in, in my own experience, which is, of course, limited you know, the companies that I deal with, um, it still seems pretty primitive in terms of, of this stuff. And often, you know, they'll bring in some young person as a social media expert and they'll have 2000 likes on Facebook and that'll be considered social media duty done. What's, what's your but you, you have a, a broader read of the industry. So I'm curious how fast you think it's heading in the right direction. 
I think you're exactly right, Alex. I think that uh, companies are a full internet generation behind NGOs, the plaintiff's bar, and even regulators. Uh, I think that most of those need to go to the internet in order to be able to communicate to their massive members and numbers. So if you want to understand what needs to be done, go to the web, take a look, and watch and learn. Uh, so I, I do think that they're incredibly far uh, behind, uh, but they can catch up. But your point about let's hire a 20-something and we'll do our social media thing. I mean, what should our Facebook strategy be? What should our Twitter strategy be? Uh, you know, no one would ever ask, what should our telephone strategy be? The first question you want to ask is, okay, we want to build this pipeline or we want, we want to be able to continue uh, to uh, drill uh, using uh, fracking technology. What do we want to communicate? What are the benefits, not to us, what are the benefits to others? Who in those groups of others that we're benefiting uh, have we talked to? Who do we know? Who amongst them would like to be the messengers? You know, we have lots of money. One of the things that we could be spending our money on, that we should be spending our money on all the time, are community relations. So we already have uh, trusted relationships with many of these uh, groups uh, because they know us through the years. And so they're willing to listen to us. And uh, then it's a much different conversation. Then they will choose, is it video or is it, you know, is it Twitter or is it Pinterest or, uh, you know, Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, but it will become a, a genuine conversation. And that's critical, a genuine conversation. And they will help choose the social media vehicle, which has most resonance to them and their peers. Yeah, I think that's another thing I hope that, that I, we have many people from energy companies listen. I hope that's another thing to take cognizance of uh, because medium is, I think, misinterpreted a lot. And in, in, for instance, in the business realm, people call themselves, you know, internet marketers. One of my favorite marketers said, that's like saying I'm a yellow page marketer. It's, it's, the key thing is, is what is your message? How are you, what are you marketing and how are you doing it? And then, of, and then media is something that's ever changing uh, and, and flexible, but, but people think that the new medium is going to be their, their salvation at the essence of what the other side is doing well is the medium rather than the message and the strategy. Alex, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Couldn't say it better myself. Um, okay, so we have we have Colorado. What what concretely do you think are some groups that haven't been engaged that could be engaged? I, I think if you look at Youngstown, you see the pipefitters uh, actually uh, got involved uh, and supported uh, the uh, fracking campaign, the pro fracking campaign. I, I, you know, most of the unions have been neutral, and some have actually been in opposition to either you know Keystone or fracking. And I think you need to certainly win those over first. I think that's important. Uh, and I think you need to look at the lessons of Youngstown and see that when you engaged unions, it became your neighbors who were communicating. We trust our neighbors. We don't trust the big company, the foreign company, if, even if they're just you know, across the border, north of the border in Canada, um, or they're a Western company, but here we are in the East. Well, we just don't know them. But we do trust our neighbors, and that's why it's so important to 
uh, engage uh, engage the unions. How the industry hasn't overwhelmingly won over the unions already, I just don't know. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the, the, so, I mean, some, someone might say, okay, well, Richard, it all seems, you know, you're making it all seem so, so straightforward. I mean, obviously you're acknowledging complexity, but you're saying could be done much better. So let, let's say somebody hears that and they, they want, uh, you know, they want some help concretely, uh, feel free to advertise your wares. How can, how can Levick help them? Well, I, you know, I think the conversation, and again, I keep talking about this, but starting with the benefits, and that means thinking differently. And I began this conversation, Alex, with you talking about we're in a revolution. And revolutions require us to think differently. You know, Hermé, the great uh, purse manufacturer, was originally a buggy whip manufacturer. And they understood that no matter how good a buggy whip they made, if there are fewer buggy whips uh, needed out there, you're going to sell fewer buggy whips. And so they changed as a company. IBM changed and has changed multiple times. It's seeing around the corner and what's next. The world has changed. And as long as people want to think of it as a technology revolution that we can, as you said a few moments ago, turn it over to a 20-something and we've got our social media strategy done, then they're not going to change. It's going to be dumbed down and not part of what uh, the, the change that needs to occur at companies. If you look at most companies, publicly traded companies, how many of them other than Silicon Valley companies have digitally savvy people actually on the board or reporting to the board? How many companies have changed their enterprise risk management so that uh, it's in fact taking risk and putting it what I call on the onion skin, looking 24-7 at what risks are on Google's and, and other sophisticated uh, search engines like Radiant 6 and others to understand uh, what risks are starting to uh, uh, rise in, uh, in likelihood. How many uh, companies are, uh, or, uh, have brand have the brand folks uh, as well, uh, with relationships with risk and legal because the brand folks are the ones who understand digital. So those are the kinds of transformative changes. You know, as I mentioned, we've got this model for 60 years. How many companies don't uh, have, have grown out of uh, grown beyond their silos. You know, by silos I mean there's HR, human resources, there's IR, uh, in, uh, investor relations, there's GR, government relations, public relations, et cetera, et cetera. Outside legal, inside legal. There are all these silos. Well, in the in, the, in a social and digital world, those silos increasingly become meaningless. You know, one of the reasons why companies fail at this is because anticipating these kinds of issues doesn't fall into anyone's bucket. It's really not communication. It's really not brand. It's really not digital. It's really not legal. It's really not risk. It's really not HR. And so as a result, no one wants to address this new responsibility because uh, you know, whose budget should it come out of? No one is responsible for the new silo called what's next. Well, speaking of, of what's next, where can listeners learn more about Levick online? 
Well, thanks so much for asking that, uh, Alex. One of these days we'll get around to building a website. Is that the address I should give? Um, I, we have, uh, we, we're over at levick.com, which is L-E-V-I-C-K, levick.com. And uh, from that, you can get to all of our resources, whether it's our uh, Twitter handles or uh, the, our email addresses, but anything that you need over at uh, L-E-V-I-C-K.com. And as I said before, we'll we'll link uh, we'll link to that website, but also to the Forbes columns, which everyone should definitely read. Uh, Richard, any final thoughts before we sign off? First of all, Alex, thank you so much, and I would just encourage. This is not a tactical change; it's a strategic change, and things have to begin at the top. And what we need to do is think differently, and from there, everything gets so much easier. All right. Well, uh, thanks for being on the show. And if you don't mind uh, holding on for a minute after, but um, yeah, thanks again. Alex, thank you so much. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.